This is the Men Podcast. I'm Joe Roder, and it's brought to you by Red's Fly Shop. So this is the podcast where we don't waste any of your time. We just talk strategy, fishing, try to get you schooled up. If you're a little entertained in the process, great. If not, at least you're going to get some kick-ass fly fishing knowledge to get you out there, make you more effective, and make better use of your time. So uh, over the course of the last week, I've uh, been shifted from a few days of steelhead guiding uh, back to my home water, which is the Yakima River. Love this river. Uh, it's a large uh, western-style river. Um, if you could picture, oh, it's about the size of the Madison. You know, for folks that maybe travel to the Rocky Mountain states, uh, would be a pretty good, maybe most accurate, you know, size comparison. Or the Bitterroot, a um, little bigger than the Blackfoot. Uh, through most of its duration. But anyway, it's a big river. And this time of year, we, like a lot of rivers, transition from uh, traditional summertime hatches, like terrestrials, such as grasshoppers, ants, caddis, and uh, in general, just larger insects. And as the, the days get short, the nights get cold, and uh, the daytime temperatures might range anywhere from a high of, say, 35 to 60, uh, we start to get our small bug hatches. And our number one hatch, like I would say the majority of, of trout rivers across the country, in fact, is going to be a betis, also known as a blue-winged olive, acronym BWO. People are always asking, what in the world, what in the heck is a BWO? And that stands for Blue Winged Olive. And uh, just as the name implies, this insect is widespread. It's all over the country, all over the world, in fact, in trout streams. And uh, it does, in fact, have an olive body for the most part. There are lots of little variants. Um, these insects fall into the uh, general family. I think it's called Betadi, uh, and the, uh, I think the specific genus is a Betis. And then there's lots of you know particular subspecies within that Betis realm. I didn't know all this till about an hour ago. And I looked at this website called Troutnet.com, and they got this whole uh, <laughs> and a, uh, dichotomy of the blue winged olive on that side, which I thought was pretty cool. So. Uh, I've always called them betas or blue-winged olives, and as an angler, you don't need to know all the Latin baloney, but you do need to know a little bit about the insect. It's going to make you more effective angler, and uh, especially with this hatch, because what happens is at the end of the season, these fish have had a whole summer's education, and then you get uh, these, I would say, fairly consistent hatches of blue-winged olives, and there's other mayflies uh, like mahogany duns or cahills or Hendrickson's and a lot of these real classic uh, patterns are named after these hatches or, or we call the hatches based on a pattern that looks like the bug is, is probably more likely. But um, the fish have had a whole summer's education. They're very selective. They're using their energy very, very wisely. The water's fairly cool, but they know or, or they'd like to put on as much weight as they can before uh, they kind of go into a semi-hibernation during the winter where they have very low metabolism, very low energy expenditure, and then they're going to spawn in the spring. And uh, the more weight they build now, 
the more successful they are in the spawn. So the trout seem to feel some urgency to feed this time of year, but they generally do it right during hatch time. It's classic small dry fly fishing. The challenge has been uh, that when they, they've had that summer's education and the water uh, is, is really very low and clear across most streams, as we begin to get uh, freezing temperatures at night, um, a lot of the tributary supply, you know, any creeks, uh, small tributaries, all that stuff really begins to freeze up and the water gets very clear and it's no longer carrying any turbidity in it in general. So as it gets clear and low, um, the fish are very aware of their surroundings. Um, they see the fly coming from a little further away. They can identify small insects. They can identify prey or predators. So they, they feel pretty comfortable being able to get uh, up on the surface and sip flies and feed on the surface. So uh, over the last... Uh, Seven days. I've guided three days, I think, and the rest of the time I'm in the office doing busy stuff. Also took my son bighorn sheep hunting, by the way. Uh, he drew what could be a once-in-a-lifetime permit for him and uh, took a bighorn ram two days ago, which is super awesome. I'll put it up on the Reds Hunting uh, Facebook page for anybody who wants to check that out. i got to mention that. Uh, awesome adventure. So uh, it was a juvenile ram tag uh, that was allotted because they need to downsize the herd here for some biological reasons. And uh, he got drawn for the special youth permit. But anyway, busy doing lots of outdoor stuff. But been guiding uh, over this hatch, and I absolutely love it. I've fished trout uh, several different continents now. And, man, I'll tell you, that small dry fly game in the fall is about as cool as it gets when it comes to skillful dry fly angling. And, um, I was guiding the, the la the two, the, out of the three trips, the last seven days, the first two, we really had a tough time catching. We, we got enough fish, you know, the number of fish we catch is really less relevant. I mean, I really, it is all about the adventure and, and being able to catch the fish in this game that you set out to catch, not flock shooting, not hoping, not blind casting, but picking one riser and being able to match match wits with that fish match your skills against his you know his defense skills and uh if he can take him that's great i mean it's not about the number you catch but we caught enough fish and the guys did good but it, it seemed like it was a lot more that kind of flock shooting you know we'd see three or four fish rising we'd run a drift through there a couple of times and I ended up having after the two days of guiding the strategy i wind wound up using was effective, but it wasn't what we want to do. And then the third trip, I kind of had a, a breakthrough. So on the first two, the first trip, we just ran uh, little uh, sparkle duns, uh, little tiny like RS2 emergers in like a light gray, and uh, that worked fine. And then we ran like a hair wing dun type pattern. We we ran a cripple. Um, and if you go to our website and go to dry flies and click mayflies. And you can go there right now if you're on your computer. Uh, go to redsflyfishing.com. And we've got our flies pretty organized. We've worked pretty hard on that. But you can go to the dry flies, mayflies, and start to look for BWOs. Or just search BWO in the, the online store thing. And you can get some pictures of the patterns that I'm using here. But the first trip, we 
we were a little frustrated. We got enough fish the second trip, and I'll, I'll talk about technique and casting and strategy and all that uh, here, probably the back end of the podcast, and, and that makes a profound difference in this type of small technical dry fly fishing. But on the second trip, I was getting a little bit more, I think, frustrated because I felt like we should be able to have some consistent results and the fish were continuing to feed. Yes, they're spooky and they're smart and all that, but I felt like we we should have gotten more fish and we ended up running a, a little tiny soft hackle, a number 20 underneath, uh, like four inches behind uh, Sparkle Dunn. And the Sparkle Dunn's nice, or Comparadun, Sparkle Dunn, the two terms really can be used interchangeably. It's got a an L-care wing that stands fairly upright. Uh, and I ran that soft tackle four inches behind it, and we we picked up, you know, a good number of fish. That was kind of like, that was the cat's meow right there. Like, that got them, but felt a little bit dirty. Um, you know, it's a good technique. I do it. I'm not disgraced by it, but I'd rather throw a single dry fly that we can see on the surface, make one good shot, pick up a fish at our discretion, right? Like when you're running that soft tackle, it's, it's a good strategy. You utilize that absolutely if you can't get them to eat, but I, I still felt like we should be able to pick those fish up because they were eating duns. I mean, I could see, I could physically see the dun or the adult mayfly, you know, the blue wing olive floating downstream and they were sipping duns and they just wouldn't take our duns. And what I was running was about, oh, you know, there's, it, it's a fairly large stream. So I think the leader wound up being about 10 to 11 feet of 5X um, down to, you know, a number 18 or 20 uh, sparkle done and then 6X floral behind that to that soft tackle. And we picked up almost all of them on the soft tackle. So ran that trip. It was great. Um, and in fact, if you're curious about spots that, you know, like we were fishing one of the couple of those particular days. If you follow us uh, on base map, you can go to basemap.com slash reds and you can download this mapping app and you can see, you know, I'm going to start marking, you know, points of interest and, and places that on the river that I'm catching fish and just sharing those with you guys right there. You can see a location, but basemap.com slash reds. And you can get the app for free there on that URL. And if you decide to go pro, it'll give you 10% off. So anyway, you can click on there and see a few photos, see what this place looks like um, and exactly where we're at within the river. So went through that trip. Was I was satisfied with how many we caught, but I still wanted to catch, you know, I wanted to catch these fish true, like truly on duns. Um, so fast forward to the last trip. Um, uh, finally kind of had a breakthrough. I wound up, I haven't bought 7X in... I don't know if I've ever bought 7X. Um, it's just generally speaking, it's frustrating to tie, frustrating to work with. It breaks off too much. And I've never, I in previous exchanges, I've never found it to be very advantageous. But I grabbed, we, we, I, I tested this stuff about a month ago. It's the Scientific Anglers uh, Absolute uh, tip, Trout Tippet Series. And uh, I got I got it in 7x. It comes with a cutter. It's amazing stuff. It's super great tippet. It's it's superior to anything I've ever used to, to this point. 
And so I grabbed the spool at 7X. I'm like, you know what? We're going to run 18 inches of 7X. We're going to see what happens. And I'm telling you right now, like, I, I came into the shop that afternoon and I wouldn't shut up about what, like, difference it made. Because I'd ran several trips the days prior and then switched to the 7X. And I'm telling you, it doubled our hookups. And just one single dry fly, nothing complicated, didn't really do anything different. You know, I'll share with, you know, I'm going to share a lot of strategies with you that, you know, I found to be useful for fishing, small technical dry fly fishing last week. But point is, it increased our hookup count by like double. I mean, I, I was absolutely floored what a difference it made. And uh, I started to put a lot of thought into it and it just... And then we did break off a couple of fish, but I don't think we broke them off just because of the tippet. I mean, a, a, a longer piece of 7X, like 18 inches of it, has a fair amount of stretch. You're using a tiny hook, like, you know, we're running 18s and 20s anyway. So the hook the hook itself can't handle a lot of tension. So the stretch of the 7X arguably could be advantageous. We broke two fish off, but they were like freaking gorilla hook sets like you know big fish would come up and eat and the angler just get freaking loses stuff and just set way too hard so it's easy to do i won't even pretend that i haven't done that before leave you cannot gorilla set with the with the 7x on there or a size 20 for that matter uh so i think that it, it just seemed to me like even the drifts that appeared mediocre like the line wasn't managed well it seemed like the flexibility of that 7X for a small mayfly made an absolutely huge difference. I mean, just night and day difference. Drifts that I didn't think would get eaten, that wouldn't have got eaten a couple of days prior on 5X or even 6X, it, they ended up getting sipped by the trout very willingly. I was absolutely blown away. The fish were less spooky. And uh, I started to really think about it, and it's just... it. You know, in looking at the diameters, and I know mathematically this doesn't make sense, but like 7X seems to be like half the diameter of 5X, and it's still like 25 or 30% smaller than 6X. Um, you know, X represents some kind of coefficient that, that tells us what the diameter is, but that 7X is just super thin. But I found that SA stuff to be really easy to tie and work with. I wasn't frustrated um, at all. Um, easy to tie. When, when you are tying, like, say, 7X or an ultralight tippet uh, onto an existing leader, I really recommend triple surgeon's knots and not blood knots. Um, I just think they're faster, more functional. Uh, in, in the field, they're equally as strong, in my opinion. In the lab, I believe a blood knot is uh, a fraction stronger. But in, in the field, like I said, I believe the, the triple surgeon's not to be every bit as strong or stronger in a practical sense. And do a triple surgeon's, make sure and give the knot a get big kiss um, and uh, get some saliva on there to, to make sure that it doesn't melt up. But I found the stuff to be easy to tie and work with. I had no, no issues with it at all. I think where people get in trouble with light tippet a lot of times is they run light tippet to too large of a fly. And uh, it tends to spin up. If there's a rubber leg uh, or even a larger nymph, it uh, can be snapped off if there's a lot of momentum on it. So um, as long as you're cautious with it, I, I didn't have a problem running it. Um, it let the fly wander in these kind of all these imperceivable current lines and seams. Uh, and a fly that small really need, does need to wander. It's going to follow every little microcurrent that the river offers in so we found to be a huge difference, you know, write that down. Um, 
you know, that abs, you know, the scientific anglers that's, and on that, that scientific angler stuff, rather than a lot of tippet companies have that light tippet coming out through a metal grommet, uh, on the rubber band, uh, I find that metal grommet can scratch that really fine tippet and weaken it. And, uh, that scientific anglers has just a really nice rubber band. It's got a built-in cutter. Um, you really ought to check it out. Um, just, yeah, go to our tippet section on our website or just type in absolute in the search bar on redsflyfishing.com if you want to see what I'm talking about. But the stuff's money. Um, I'm switching over, um, to, to that stuff exclusively. So made a huge difference. We ran sparkle duns primarily. Uh, we ran a couple of other patterns. We ran a high vis spinner, um, in the afternoon and, uh, and that worked very well, uh, when the spinner fall began to occur late in the hatch when the bugs were done emerging. So that's a couple of good tips for you. Um, use, uh, regarding just touching on tackle, um, before I talk about like what makes a mayfly hatch different, um, I want you guys to understand that learning a little bit about these bugs is going to help you make decisions in the field that will impact the, the enjoyment of your day. Like knowing the insects, uh, it really is important. You don't need to know all the Latin names and all that kind of stuff, but you need to know a little bit about their behavior. So I, I will touch on that, but regarding tackle, I'll keep that short and sweet. Uh, my preferred rod for this type of fishing is going to be, um, uh, I have an eight foot, nine inch, uh, three weight sage. Uh, it's an older one. Um, if I were shopping today, uh, I would probably look at, uh, something, uh, with kind of a medium to medium fast action in the three, three or four weight range, uh, at least eight and a half feet long for larger streams, uh, eight and a half to nine feet long. Uh, just to be able to reach out there and get some stuff done beyond, say, 25 or 30 feet. Uh, nine feet is handy. Small streams, seven and a half to eight and a half feet works great. Keep the lines in that uh, three or four weight range. It protects small hooks, protects light tippet. But more so than anything, the fly line itself, um, it, it's important to have a really good fly line. But those lighter fly lines, they're just a smaller diameter and they drift better. Um, you make less disturbance on the water when you mend them. Um, a three weight compared to a five weight just lands softer. It's quieter. It has less drag. It mends better. So, um, a fairly high performance, you know, nine foot three weight is a really great hatch rod. Nine foot four weight works great. I've got a Winston pure nine foot four weight that I'm in love with. Um, I find it very easy to cast at anywhere from 20 to 40 feet. I can make extremely accurate, delicate shots. Um, and I think we'll we'll probably talk about like how to actually lay in a the the proper presentation and plan for these fish maybe at the end of the podcast. But regarding tackle, that's what I like. Get uh you know minimum of a nine foot leader, nine foot five x, nine foot six x. Uh, you you could throw a chunk of seven x tippet on the end of that. Um, you know my my honest to goodness plan is don't buy seven x tapered leaders. Uh you're going to end up breaking that tippet and replacing it anyways. And that way you've got, you know, a nine foot five or a nine foot six X liter to start with that. You could put, you know, pair up with a little larger dry fly if you so desired. So maybe that's a little bit, um, kind of my pragmatic side speaking out there, but, uh, so your, your leader winds up being say minimum 10 and a half to 11 feet for larger streams. And, uh, you're running it on a three or four weight, uh, as far as fly lines go, um, lighter tapers are good. Scientific anglers amplitude trout, uh, is a nice light taper. Um, the Rio in touch gold, 
uh, is also a really good light taper for more delicate dry fly fishing. There's one called the Rio uh, Technical Trout. Uh, that's a very good line as well. Um, but those lines are de- designed to deliver smaller dry flies primarily. It, it, you could do all sorts of stuff with them, but a nice fresh fly line that floats high on the surface won't sink your fly when you mend it. And if it's nice and slick, you're going to be able to feed line without disturbing the drift because the line falls out of your guides. It slides through the guides really easy. So keep that in mind. The fly line matters. A, a huge deal. The fly line matters. Uh, and then regarding floating and such, um, I, I tend to run Flyagra uh, on. Flyagra is a floatant that you can get. You know, you can read all the jokes on the website. I won't care to dive into those, but uh, keeps the fly up. Uh, you can dip the fly in there. It's great for small dry flies. I love it. Uh, and then, you know, I use Aquel just to retreat real quickly because I can keep that handy. I don't have to take a cap off. I can just kind of put a little dab on there. That's a Loon product. And then you can use like a, uh, I think it's a Loon the high float product where you put the fly in there and shake it up to get it dry. Um, that also works really good too. When you're having trouble seeing your fly, that Loon, uh, you know, high float, uh, I think that's what it's called. Just go to the floating section on the web. You can, you can check all the stuff out there. Anyway, uh, regarding seeing your fly, that seems to be a, a common challenge. Uh, I guess I'll touch on that, and then I'll go into casting and kind of biology of the mayfly. Without making this too long, I want to keep it, stay on point here. I could ramble all day about dry fly fishing, man. Uh, r- regarding seeing your fly, it seems to me, and I'll share this story with you that I can remember from my very, very early guide days. And I'm like, I've been guiding this is my 20th season and I'm still learning stuff. Oh my gosh. All the time getting better at this game. Uh, not always trying to catch more fish, but like I said, figuring out how to catch fish with the methodology that you care for most. That's where the real, uh, real skill comes in. But I was guiding these two guys and, uh, they're, they're older dudes. They're as in like, I don't know, they're mid seventies. Um, they're in their they're in their dry fly prime, and it seems like when you guide people with small dry flies, it's like they have you know, it, it, they never see the they can never see the fly. It seems like, and then as guides, we wind up using flies that are way too big, way too buoyant. They don't require skill to keep on the surface, and oftentimes people really don't get better at dry fly fishing because as guides, we make it so easy for them all the time. But you hardy do it yourself, anglers. Listen to this. You can relate. You've been in the struggle. You've had trouble seeing your fly at some point, right? So I was guiding these two older guys, and they I, they could keep a number 18 parachute atoms buoyant and visible and right in the seam, even through the fastest water in any light all the time. They could always see their fly. And they could fish that you know, number 18 parachute atoms and put it right on the seams. Very, very good fishermen. You know, from like old school touch and finesse with small dry flies. And, uh, man, those guys, they just absolutely got it done. And I was just so, like, as I'm sitting there kind of watching this as a guide, you're fortunate to be in this observer role a lot of the time where you don't really have an emotional attachment to, like, what's going on. You're just like, okay, wow, that works really well. That type of cast floats really good. That type of men didn't sink the fly. And you just, you, you process and you're logging all this constantly. And... Partway through the day, I began to realize that eyesight had all, I guarantee these guys are, I mean, 
I'd say they're probably legally blind. I mean, I swear they they couldn't tie on their tippet or any of that stuff. But man, they could see that dry fly, no problem. It's a, it's a, there's got a little white post on it. It's pretty easy to see when it's buoyant and it's. Here's the kicker. Listen to this. When it lands and hits the spot where you're looking, it's very easy to see. And that was my epiphany. I'm like, these guys can't see that well, but they hit exactly where they're looking every time. They're very capable casters. That's why it's so easy for them to see their fly. That's why they can keep it buoyant, because they have good line speed. So every false cast or every delivery, they blow all of the water out of that dry fly. They set it down soft, so it just gently perches on top of the surface tension. And they, they were fabulous, and they still are fabulous dry fly fishermen. It's been a while. I haven't fished with those guys in a bit, and hope they're doing okay. Reminds me, I should probably reach out to them. Uh, anyway, these guys could set that dry fly down so perfectly. And, uh, and, and I began to realize, you know, it has very little to do with our ability to see the fly. And it has everything to do with where the fly hits and how it lands and keeping it buoyant. So when it comes to mayflies, I'll say that about casting. And I'll, I'll kind of share some strategies on casting, you know, little dry flies and getting to that level where you can hit, you know, a paper plate size spot every time with a little dry fly. But the reason that's so critical with mayflies is you have to be able to hit the spot you're looking. These flies are very small. And when you have a feeding fish, the window that they're the window that they're feeding in is very uh, narrow, typically. They don't wander a lot when they're on little bugs like a blue-winged olive. Um, they they tend to, to station up in a seam line, and they follow that seam line. They often sit suspended right under the surface, which makes them a little bit spookier most of the time because they're, they're, they're near the surface. But I, I guess you probably need to understand a little bit about what makes mayflies different than say caddisflies or stoneflies. Those are the, th and terrestrials, we'll throw terrestrials in there on the side. But out of the three aquatic, major aquatic insects, mayflies um, hatch the slowest. So they tend to, the nymph, I'll just take you through the life cycle. Let's just say they live on a one-year life cycle, which I believe almost all mayflies do. They live as a nymph for a year in the water. And when it comes time to hatch, uh, blue-winged olives um, tend to hatch on days with poor weather. So gray weather, dark skies, even a colder day, that's when those mayflies like to release from a rock and they dead drift themselves to the surface. And they, they'll use gas bubbles um, and they'll, they'll float and they'll try to get themselves positive buoyance and they'll begin floating to the surface. During that time, you could fish a nymph or a soft tackle, uh, something subsurface to take advantage of that timing. Uh, some mayflies will crawl up the back side of a boulder, the down current side of a boulder, and that will get them nearer the surface. And then they'll let go when they get to the surface and they will float in the surface film uh, and begin to emerge uh, from their shuck or their casing at that point. So once they hit the surface, they tend to go through the process that, that we'll just say metamorphosis. I'm not sure that's really the proper term because I believe the metamorphosis was uh, was already done at that point. But let's just say they, they emerge like a caterpillar or, you know, morphs into a butterfly. That process of the cocoon opening, butterfly comes out. Well, that has to take place for a blue wing or, or any other mayfly right within the surface film itself. 
And that process can take a little bit. They're generally a, a fairly slow emerger. That makes them very vulnerable to the trout. So once these blue wings begin to emerge, the trout can feast on them, and they're a very little flight risk. This is very different than a caddisfly, which tends to emerge very quickly. Uh, caddisflies will, well, those pupil will swim fairly aggressively to the surface. They'll hit the surface, and they tend to bust out of that, that pupil skin and fly away very quickly. Mayflies, it tends to be slower. They need to dry their wings, and their wings look like a little sailboat profile on the water. And I believe they tend to hatch or prefer cloudy days so that their wings don't dry too fast and glue themselves together. Now, in the process, that emergence, it's slow. The, it becomes very vulnerable. Uh, the trout will take the, the mayfly as an emerger. They'll take it uh, as a cripple if it, com- if it completely struggles or fails to crawl out of that pupil skin uh, it, or that shuck, they will become essentially called a cripple. And if you type in crickle, cripple on our online store, you'll see some examples of flies that would imitate that. And cripples, uh, trout tend to recognize those as vulnerable and less of a flight risk, and they can often prefer those. So once a mayfly hatch starts, uh, the trout recognize them as a vulnerable, as a vulnerable uh, item, and they'll single them out. What's so cool about especially these small ones, man, is those trout, once they start eating duns and they kind of move off the emergers, if they feel real comfortable, it's like a cloudy day or you're in the shade like I've been. I've been fishing in the shade. uh, Is They tend to sit suspended and it's a slow sip, man. You see that whole head tip back. They just let that dun float right into their mouth. It's slow. It's methodical. I could sit there and watch it for hours. So that's one thing that's just very, I'm just enamored by that rise on a mayfly hatch because it's slow and methodical. So mayflies tend to hatch slow. Uh, you just kind of going through the process of the mayfly hatch. So they, 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 they hatch as duns. Uh, they metamorph, they, they go through like another, I guess, a sexual maturity and they become spinners. They mate, females become impregnated. Um, sometimes it's as short as a few hours that this happens. Sometimes it's a, a couple of days. But those spinners will then, uh, the male spinners will then die and fall back into the water and they lay out flat on the water with their wings spent. There's no profile to them. And then often late in the day after the hatch the trout will move on to spinners and spinner falls can be really cool to fish definitely some of the tougher more technical fishing because they don't have a profile real real tough to see those patterns and the fish become very selective on those spinners the female blue wings actually (laughs) i just learned this they dive underwater man and they actually swim underwater often along the shore and they'll swim down underwater and lay their eggs on the backside of a rock. So at least that's what I read at troutnet.com. Go check out. The guy has a lot of good information on there. Just about bugs. If you're interested in learning this kind of stuff. Or you can just listen to my podcast. And I'll take like two hours of reading. And turn it into like five minutes of relevancy. Uh, either way you want it. So the females will actually swim down. And uh, you know there's, there's another strategy. That's a beautiful way to fish. And I frankly i have not really gotten very good at it with consistency i've certainly done it 
And that's just learning how to swing soft tackles during a mayfly hatch and present a soft tackled fly on tension uh, and imitate one of those, either a female swimming to lay eggs um, or one that is swimming its way. Some betas, it depends on the very specific species, but some betas are very capable swimmers. Some will actually swim to the surface. Um, There's lots of different types of, you know, subspecies in this betas family. Uh, So you can swing a soft tackle, imitate those females swimming down, uh, or if you're having trouble catching fish, uh, or you just want something different. Um, You can use a betas on a a light sink tip with a long tippet. the the success I've had I've used a like a three inch per second poly leader you can get these scientific anglers uh, sonar leaders uh, from us and just get one that sinks at like three inches per second approximately and run a long tippet on the end of that run like six or seven feet uh, on the end of that with a small uh, bluing olive soft tackle and, uh, and and try your hand at swinging it to feel every grab which is cool. So that's a little bit about how the mayflies hatch, you know, what they do, why they're so interesting and intriguing to fish. When it comes to actual technique on setting up on these things, I can't tell you enough how important accurate casting is. And uh, it is, it, it's, one of the, it's one of the disciplines of casting, like in my observation of teaching casting and doing a lot of guiding is, small dry fly fishing really is becoming a lost art unfortunately because we you know like as guides at least like from the arena that i at least from my perch here i mean we run a fly shop you know very very large fly shop worldwide outfitter and we get a lot of visitors that either are here to see the river or just want to come see reds it's a pretty cool location if you ever get a chance to travel to see us i don't think you'll regret it but like for my perch i see a lot of folks that are they've gotten real good at nymphing yeah, pretty proficient in streamer fishing, trout spay, throwing a big, you know, chubby Chernobyl type hopper, but mostly lob and bobbers. And the casting, the prowess of casting a tiny dry fly, and the picture I painted with my my old gray haired pals, that they, they could throw a number eighteen pair of atoms in heavy current, delicately set it down and keep it floating the whole time. That is, I, we see that. A very small percentage of the time. We're more likely to see a guy who can throw a streamer 70 feet than an angler that can drop a number 18 or 20 delicately on the surface and catch feeding fish. So, with that said, I would really encourage you to practice your small dry fly casting and learn to develop good line speed at close range. And extremely fast action rods don't do that well. They tend to need more distance to develop clean line speed and anchor cast. So medium fast action rods, uh, you know, qual- quality rods matter. Uh, I'm a firm believer in that. You know, I can catch fish with a broom handle if I really wanted, but I prefer, you know, a quality rod, accurate casts where you can hit pie plate sized targets at 30 feet consistently with a 10 foot leader and deliver that fly, not slap it down in the water, but deliver it with good line speed where the where you have a high stopping point for the forward cast. That is super critical. The only time you want a low stopping point is when you're throwing straight back upstream. A high stopping point to get that fly to turn over and put the brakes on that intense line speed inches before it hits the surface. Where it, it shoots out aggressively, it stops a few inches off the surface and then parachutes down to the water and barely perches itself on surface tension. 
that surface tension relationship with the fly is very key in my opinion because as, as any of those hackle fibers or even that dubbing is they press on that tension it looks like that bug wiggling and struggling you know a lot of people say oh low riding bugs work really great in the film and all that kind of stuff and sure if you're imitating a floating nymph all that's fine and dandy but you know my goal is generally to catch them on duns catch them on the surface in a way where I can actually see their head come out and sip a fly. So practice your casting, tight loops, good line speed, and the recipe for me, I've watched this for 20 years, you guys, and I'm like I said, I got no emotional attachment. Two false casts into drop. That that it it it, it works all the slack out of your line, all the kinks, it gives you accuracy. And I heard, I got some comment, I did shared this video tip, and I got some knucklehead who's like, well, I just prefer, that wastes fishing time. Like, do you know how fast two false casts are? What is that, like two to three seconds to make a better cast? My goal is to make one cast, one cast at a rising fish and catch it. I want that one cast to be perfect. So two false casts and a drop. It, 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 people tend when I coach people on this like if I got a gangler to the boat I tell them I'm like hey throw two false casts then drop it I see immediate improvement I see I see more fish get caught I got no dog in the fight I don't care if we catch it on the first cast or the fifth cast or the fifth false cast that's just the recipe that works so two false casts and a drop and make sure you put that nice crisp stop on it to help parachute that fly down and at some point, I'll try to do more. You know, I've got a handful of videos that touch on the subject on our YouTube channel. But um, take a, you know, try to picture that in your mind. Practice that recipe uh, when you when you approach on scene and you found a fish that's feeding. Take a deep breath and watch the fish feed several times. Figure out his pattern. Figure out his rhythm. Are you just seeing his back and his tail? Are you seeing his head? What are you seeing? I tend to want to catch him on, you know, some type of, of like I describe a dun or an adult. I even consider a sparkle dun a dun. Uh, it's in the name, but it actually is kind of an emerger pattern. It's got a little trailing shuck on it, um, meaning it's just coming out of its skin, its nymphical skin. Uh, but if they're if I'm only seeing their back and the, their head and I can't get them on duns, I'll run an emerger. I'll run a little CDC type emerger. Um, I'll run a cripple uh, if I'm just seeing their back and their head. But once I'm seeing that that fish's head come out of the water, I'm throwing adults and I'm watching that fish. I'm trying to get into his feeding rhythm. Most of the time, if you're a very good caster, and and I I prove this on all of my guide trips. I, I threw. I'd be like, if they got frustrated on these fish, I'd say, hey, let the guy throw a couple shots. And not bragging myself up, I've just had a lot of practice. But man, I can drop that fly on them, and I can catch them on the first cast almost every time. And one of the tricks, it, you, you've got to get good at it. It's a little bit risky, but I tend to drop that fly very close to the fish. I tend to drop it anywhere from 18 to 24 inches straight upstream of the fish. And you have to have the ability to drop it very accurately with controlled slack in the leader. Uh, if you try to drift a number 18 or a 26 to 8 feet downstream to a fish, usually current will push some portion of that line tight during that long duration of a drift. If I drop it 2 feet above them 
and I drop controlled slack into the cast intentionally, which I do. The high stopping point with it with a good with a good crisp stop will do that. My fly tends to wander very naturally towards the fish, and I tend to catch them a lot. So, like I said, that's just sheer observation, man. I've had a lot of practice doing that. Uh, so those are you know hopefully some great tips for you. Um, there's there's still some season left. Uh, all this all this advice I'm giving you is definitely applicable. I want to reinforce like on these these mayfly hatches in low water, they are very different than caddis. Caddis take off very quickly. Say so if you're running heavier tippet and shorter leaders, and and you're not using as much, uh, I would say, you know, stealth or you know maybe a less tactical approach with caddis, and you've had a lot of success, or stoneflies, and you've had a lot of success. Uh, it's because mayflies, they hatch differently. The fish have more time to look at them. The fish aren't going to be in a hurry. So mayflies tend to offer the angler a more, you know, uh, or require a more technical or tactical approach. Uh, in close, my, 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 uh, you know, I guess my closing thought here would be, it's also very, you know, stoneflies I didn't touch on. Uh, I want to explain their migratory pattern. A stonefly nymph, lives two to four years in the water. When it goes to hatch, it crawls to the shore, crawls out on a rock or a log or stick or twig or grass, whatever it is, it's on the bank, and then it returns to the water crawling or flying. It never emerges. So, you know, when we, if you've had success dry fly fishing and you slap the fly in and a fish comes up and eats it, they're responding to the natural behavior of, say, a stonefly. Mayflies are totally different. They, they, they're, 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 it has to be a much quieter approach. So, um, it's a different approach. Uh, get, get out there, get yourself frustrated, fail a little bit, struggle, um, employ these tactics, understand that they're going to work, get yourself set up right with the right terminal tackle. Of course you can get it at reds, uh, and, uh, get yourself outfitted, get out there. Um, we'd love to have your support and, uh, we wish you the best of luck out there on your next blueing olive hatch.